2020 was the moment where countries are supposed to come forward with enhanced ambition. Um, that's now been delayed to 2021, giving countries more time to do so. We know the EU, with their Green Deal, um, is on track and all systems ahead. And we hope that the Biden presidency, if there is one, um, will come forward with enhanced ambition or at least put the U.S. back on track. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program, as well as the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements. You know, in most institutions, individuals range from highly competent to quite a bit less, and they also range from delightful to work with to a real pain. As I said, such a range of individuals exist in any organization, including the International Climate Change Negotiations, otherwise known as the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC. I'm delighted to say that my guest today, Kelly Kazire, who has had well more than a decade of experience in the depths of the climate negotiations, is an outlier in both of those distributions. She is both highly competent and exceptionally engaging, and that makes me particularly happy to have time to sit down with her today for this podcast. Kelly was the EU's lead markets negotiator in the negotiations for 14 years, and for the last three years of that period, also served as the UNFCCC co-chair of the negotiations on Article 6 of the Paris Agreement which we've discussed in previous episodes of this podcast. Before beginning work with the EU in Brussels, Kelly held senior roles in Dublin with the Irish Environmental Protection Agency. And lastly, since 2019, Kelly Kazire has been Associate Vice President for International Climate at the Environmental Defense Fund. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rob, for such a lovely welcome, and I assure you the feeling is mutual. Oh, thank you. So I'm very interested to hear your impressions of the state of international climate negotiations. But we, before we talk about that, our listeners are going to be interested to learn a bit more about you. So let's go back to how you came to be where you are and where you've been. And when I say go back, I do mean go way back. Where did you grow up? I grew up in um, Littleton, Colorado, a suburb of Denver, Colorado. And that was primary school and high school as well? I was born there and um, graduated from the University of Colorado in 1995 and was not out of Colorado in the intervening years. So that was the University of Colorado in Boulder? Correct. And what did you study there? I studied economics. Oh, you did? I did. So now I know why we get along so well. <laughs> and so what was your first job out of school? Um, my first job out of school was actually as an auditor in Seattle for um, the organization that managed the pension fund of the Teamsters. Now, how did you go there? Maybe there are several steps along the way, but how did that position in Seattle take you to the first thing that I know about, which is the Irish EPA. I um, took advantage of um, what was called a working holiday visa. 
to get a four-month working visa in Ireland um, in what was to be my gap year between university and graduate school. And I went to Ireland um, at that time, what I thought was for four months. That was 1997. The Celtic Tiger was booming. Um, and I stayed <laughs> for 20 years. <laughs> I stayed for 14 years, actually, and ended up doing my master's degree um, at the University College Dublin. And there is where I got interested in emissions trading and carbon market mechanisms. That's what I did my master's thesis on. I have a master's degree in um, economic science, European economic and public affairs. University College Dublin, it's a uh, excellent institution and also a beautiful campus. It is. It's the National University of Ireland. Um, I had the joy of studying with Frank Combrey there, who I know you know well. Um, and got interested in European policy. And my timing was perfect because almost immediately upon graduating, having just studied market-based mechanisms, the EU launched its emissions trading system. So that's when I went to the Irish EPA to help implement the EU emissions trading system in Ireland. So you knew Joss Del Becke from way back. From way like. back. And so did you become an Irish citizen? You lived there, you said it sounded like 20 years. Yeah, I lived in Ireland for 14 and then in Brussels. Uh, yeah, I, I went from the Irish EPA to the European Commission in Brussels. So I was in Europe for a total of 20 years. And you have a EU passport in addition to a U.S. passport. I do. I have an Irish passport that I got through marriage. It's one of those stories. My husband is Irish. <laughs> yes. My wife has a similar situation, although I didn't get it through marriage, but that she has both the EU passport and a U.S. passport. So whenever we wind up in long lines in Frankfurt or whatever, she always makes me jealous by walking over into those <laughs> non-existent lines. I, I have been in the same boat with my family, but I now, um, for the last four years, have an Irish passport. Now, as you well know, the, the climate talks that were scheduled to take place in November of this year in Glasgow in Scotland um, have been postponed one year due to the global pandemic. What's your reaction to that? So I think I have two main reactions. One, um, the postponement of the COP should not delay urgent action by countries to step up their ambition. And I hope that no one finds comfort in that delay, that we are still urgently looking to up our game in terms of ambition. And two, that it's probably not a bad thing. I don't think countries were ready to come forward with enhanced ambition in November. Um, some maybe were, but also I think in terms of the US um, positioning and the geopolitical situation, you know, a COP in November 2020 would have been difficult in light of a Biden presidency because the Biden presidency wouldn't be established yet and the U.S. would not have re-entered the Paris Agreement. Um, and it would also be difficult in light of a Trump win because the world would not have had a chance to understand how to react to that. So I think a delay is going to be beneficial. That's interesting. It, it reminds me of... 2016 November, um, when I remember I arrived, as I usually do, it just for the second week of the negotiations, Trump had just been elected, and most of the delegations were in a state of shock. 
as I recall. That was a very tough um, cop because we had just been on the back of some really major wins, right? We had Paris Agreement the previous winter. Um, we had managed to secure, and I say we, I mean the global um, climate community had managed to secure the carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation and the Kigali Agreement. It was a crashing down. So the, then let me understand. So some observers um, have actually said, these are things I've read as much as heard, that the pandemic could derail the UN approach. And in fact, one person, I forgot who it was now, that was quoted as saying that this could render the Paris Agreement obsolete and ineffective. It, it sounds like you, your views are very, very different than those. Is that right? My views are very different from those because I think the dip we're seeing in emissions now is temporary. We haven't seen the kind of structural change that would be required to really change our path mm -hmm. to, to catastrophic climate change. So I'd be interested in the views of that person to see what they think has been resolved by COVID. And in fact, I guess you're, you're, you would go even further as to say that it turned out another silver lining of the cloud of the pandemic is the postponement for one year because the 2016 November timing was problematic vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. election, right? I think that's one reason it was problematic. And I think we have to make it into a silver lining and we have to see countries step up. And what's your what do you anticipate in that regard in terms of countries stepping up? You're you're talking about for the next round of nationally determined contributions. Yes, to right? give a little background, the current round of nationally um, nationally determined contributions, the targets that countries take under the Paris Agreement, we know um, from the evidence base um, that these are just simply not good enough to put us on a two degree, much less a one point five degree um, path. So uh, 2020 was the moment where countries are supposed to come forward with enhanced ambition. Um, that's now been delayed to 2021, giving countries more time to do so. We know the EU, with their Green Deal, um, is on track and all systems ahead. And we hope that the Biden presidency, if there is one, um, will come forward with enhanced ambition or at least put the U.S. back on track for ambition. Um, and that... China will follow suit. There are things happening, and I think we have to hope that COP26 is a moment where we see enhanced ambition. So whether or not COP26 produces uh, a set of NDCs from the major economies that advance the ball even further towards the goals you were talking about. Can you say anything about the performance of countries up until now in terms of the existing set of NDCs? We are seeing more and more um, plans rolled out to actually implement the NDCs, but it's an area of concern. Um, right now, we have too many of the targets that are just targets and name that aren't being implemented through um, national and jurisdictional policies to achieve those targets. Now, surely the U.S. will not. The, uh, the what was it, 26 to 28 percent below uh, 2005 by 2025. Um, that's 
surely not going to be achieved, and the administration is clear about that. You were saying that the European Union, however, would achieve its uh, existing NDC? Yeah, so a couple exciting things are happening in the EU, which has um, long been a, a leader in, in climate policy. So we need to make sure that the EU has success, <laughs> because if even the EU can't do it, uh, we might be in trouble. But the EU had a 40% um, reduction target um, in 2030. They are very likely to meet that 40% target. In fact, I think with energy efficiency improvements, they're at a de facto 45% target. But in November, they announced the EU Green Deal, um, which is Mm -hmm. not a new Green Deal. Rather, it's a um, centrist acceleration of established EU climate policy. And through that, they have announced that they're going to take that target to 50 or even 55% reduction by 2030 on 1990. Now, as I understand it, that's a proposal, Kelly, out of the European Commission. It still has to go to the European Parliament and then to the European Council. Is that correct or am I off on that? No, you're absolutely right. That's a proposal by the European Commission. But just one thing to note in in that, it's a proposal by the College of Commissioners in the European Commission, which has a representative from every member state in it. So it is... It is not there. It is not a done deal, but it is supported by the College of Commissioners and not just, you know, which has representation from every member state. So that sounds like you think the prognosis for approval by the member states would be quite good. Is that right? Yes, we have to hope so. And I I do think the prognosis is quite good. Does that include Poland? Yes, depending on how the package of measures is designed. I think it includes Poland. Might also depend upon how the election in Poland goes, I suppose. It always does. Similar to the election in the United States. Correct. Right. Now, one of the things that we haven't talked about um, is a very important role that you took on, which is that you came to co-chair the Article 6 negotiations. Um, Before we talk about how you came into that position of co-chairing it, which I'm really interested to learn about because I don't know. First, could you just tell, for for those of our listeners who haven't followed all of this closely or haven't been in our previous episodes of this podcast, can you just I- explain what is Article 6 and why is it important, assuming that you think it's important? I do think it's important, luckily. <laughs> um, Article 6 is... Um, an article in the Paris Agreement about international cooperation through carbon markets. Um, It's got three, as we call them, operative paragraphs. So Article 6.2 is generally about accounting for international cooperation, which is really important because double counting can undermine the climate benefit of carbon markets. Um, It's got another paragraph, 6.4, which establishes a central mechanism, so sort of a certification function for carbon credits, under the Paris Agreement, not dissimilar to what existed before under the Clean Development Mechanism. And then it's got Article 6.8, which is um, a work program for non-market approaches, which is um, about the other ways in which international cooperation works rather than through carbon markets. Now, as you know, I'm particularly interested in Article 6.2 and I've done work and written about that in the past few years. And like you, I see it as an accounting mechanism. But can you explain what you meant 
when you said that Article 6.2 is important to avoid double counting. How would there be double counting? And I think this is a nuance that a lot of people don't necessarily understand. But if you generate what we call an internationally transferred mitigation outcome, an ITMO, which is essentially a carbon credit, and you sell it, you may also you may not also claim the reduction that it represents. So if I generate 100 tons of carbon credits, which are one ton of CO2 each, and I trade them to another country, I have to forego the benefit, the reduction that came from that, or else I'm counting it and the person that I sold it to or traded it with is counting it. That's double counting. It means the benefit is undermined. So if you're going to trade, you have to make sure that you are robustly accounting or we're letting somebody off the hook for deeper reductions. And so one way then, if I understand you correctly, to look at these, the ITMOs is essentially as double entry bookkeeping um, to make sure that only one of the parties to a, an exchange or a trade is getting credit. That's exactly right. So the Paris yeah. Agreement, the, the decision accompanying the Paris Agreement, um, decision 1 CP21, says that double counting shall be avoided on the basis of a corresponding adjustment. And those are, as you have said perfectly, that that's double entry bookkeeping. There's a subtraction on one side and an addition on another side. And in that way, we know that the same ton was not counted twice. Now, you, your current organization, the Environmental Defense Fund, in a study that you all did, you found that uh, if Article 6 were fully implemented, that it would bring down tremendously the costs of achieving um, a given target in aggregate. Is that right? Actually, what we found out is that if you had international cooperation through carbon markets at a global scale, you could achieve, um, you could basically nearly double the ambition of the current NDCs at no extra cost. So rather than looking at it as cost savings, we said, okay, what if you just keep the cost static and see how much more ambition you could pull out of the system? So at zero extra cost, you could basically including carbon markets and um, land use, you could double the ambition of the Paris Agreement as it stands. So analytically, it's the same finding that you could achieve the given target at half the cost or at the same cost, you could achieve a double the target. I'm delighted to see that now that you work full time for an advocacy group that you prefer to to uh, frame it as the latter rather than exactly, the exactly. I think it's important to point out also that the International Emissions Trading Association did similar modeling work with Jay Edmonds from the University of Maryland and got very similar results using a different model. Yes. Um, now, so tell me, I want to go back now and find out something I've never known. How did you come to co-chair the Article 6 negotiations? What's the process there? Well, in Paris, um, I was really involved in developing Article 6. I mean, obviously, this is a joint effort. I was the um, a lead negotiator for markets in the EU at the time. Um, and we really pushed, along with several other countries, to get Article 6 up and running. Um, it was the last article agreed in Paris. So it was, it was literally agreed um, in the early hours of the final Saturday, um, about 12 hours before the gavel came down on the Paris Agreement. So it was the very last article to go in. Um, and I think my involvement in that led to me being asked by the substa, the subsidiary body for science and technical advice to co-chair the process going forward. 
So it is the it is the chair of the subsidiary body that requests the co-chairs or co-facilitators of the different groups. And who was that at the time? Who was the chair? The substitute chair at that time was Carlos Fuller from Belize. So you mentioned just now that it was the last article that was approved for the Paris Agreement. It's also the one article of the Paris Agreement which has, in a sense, not been completed uh, in terms of the so-called rule book that gets written to put a little more flesh on the bones of the agreement itself. Why is it that this one part of the Paris Agreement has not had the rule book uh, finalized? Let me give you a little context. I think that's kind of important when we look at Article 6. So the negotiating dynamics of Article 6 are a bit different than some of the negotiating dynamics for the other um, parts of the Paris Agreement. So Article 6 does not, unlike many articles in the Paris Agreement, differentiate between developed and developing countries. And the alignment of the positions of parties or groups of parties is also not differentiated among these lines. So instead, under Article 6, parties tend to be aligned or divergent in position depending on the extent to which they support carbon market mechanisms or activities, the extent to which they see a benefit in multilateral action and strong international rules, how much they benefited from the Kyoto Protocol, and then their fundamental understanding of the new context of the Paris Agreement and what it means that all parties have targets now. And so that creates a different dynamic. And you're now talking about a, the very complex situation in which you're trading amongst NDCs. So NDCs are heterogeneous in nature, and I know you know this because you've, you've done a lot of work on this. And that in itself creates complexity for accounting. But when you're trading amongst those, the complexity is just tenfold. And I think some of it has just been technical issues, which were largely resolved in Madrid, if at COP25 in Madrid, if we're allowed to bank that progress. And in and, and my recollection, since you bring up Madrid, is that uh, we were on a panel together. I think it was one the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements may have put together. You were kind enough to come and, and join us. And something that I observed at the time was that, or at least my theory, was that at, this, at the time of Madrid, the reason that it was so difficult to complete the rule book was precisely because it was the one part that had not been finalized. And I described it as a funnel effect. And so all the concerns that various parties had over what are really belong in other parts of the agreement got funneled into this debate. So issues of national ambition, which are dealt with in other places, transparency, which are everything was getting poured in there, which meant that even though it was the last one to be completed, that didn't make it easier to complete. That made it harder to complete. I remember that. And I, I remember thinking how grateful I was that you were able <laughs> to put a voice to that, because I think that's exactly right. People want this last bit of the rule book to resolve everything, including ambition, and it simply cannot. So there are a lot of technical issues and people find that hard to digest. And that can lead to people just blowing it all up into something more than it is. And I hope that we can avoid that dynamic when we go to agree the rules of Article 6 in Glasgow um, in 2021. But my fear is that 
that dynamic will continue, especially in relation to climate finance, which will be a massive agenda item in Glasgow. So you know, your colleague, Nat Cohane, has written and, and probably said that, well, even if we don't get Article 6 completed, um, from the bottom up, essentially, international carbon markets can arise and, and function. So how important is it to complete the rule book on Article 6? This is a great question. Um, and I guess I would start by saying COP26 is about ambition. And it's going to be important in that context to push for us to complete the Paris rule book. Because the rules matter. And we can't afford to lock in carbon market rules that undermine the integrity of the targets. At the same time, I don't disagree with Nat here at all. Agreement on these rules, as important as it is, should not be a barrier to action. We simply can't afford delay. And Article 6.2, the accounting um, part that both you and I are, are interested in and have done a lot of work on, was specifically designed so that countries could begin international cooperation through carbon markets, even in the absence of this guidance. So if you look at the language um, on Article 6, it says consistent with guidance. So it doesn't say in accordance with guidance or um, subject to guidance. It says consistent with guidance, and that was a way of indicating that parties could proceed even in the absence of guidance while waiting for those rules to be finalized. It, it, I always find it remarkable, uh, really interesting, how negotiators, these very specific words mean so much. Uh, Sue Binias, who I'm sure you know, formerly from the U.S. delegation, um, she did a podcast uh, discussion conversation with us a little while back. And frequently, this issue, that same sort of issue would come up as, well, we put that word into the article for very <laughs> precise reasons, not some alternative word. That's right. That's right. I mean, the negotiation that can happen around the words should and shall can be incredibly intense for precisely that reason. So speaking of should and shall, be, be, beyond the international, beyond Article 6, beyond the Paris Agreement, beyond all of that, in terms of progress on climate change policy around the world, looking forward, are, are you optimistic, pessimistic, somewhere in between? Where do you fall as you think about the future? I tend to be an optimist. Um... I like to try to find silver linings, as you saw, <laughs> in terms of my answer on the cop delay. I just think this is a challenge we can't avoid. I, of course, I see disappointing things happening, but I try to focus on the progress that I also see. We, we have more and more companies taking net zero targets, more and more private sector companies while waiting for government stepping up and doing action. We've got the EU with its big announcement coming forward. We had all of the major Democratic candidates say that re-entry into the Paris Agreement was a number one priority for them. We had a special debate on climate change in the U.S. Um, so I have hope. Well, that's good. Having hope is important, which makes me think about a final question, really, because thinking about the future and thinking about hope, I think about children. Uh, and I'm interested to know, what is your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism that have arisen both in Europe uh, and the United States and over the last 18 months or so or two years have become quite prominent. It's absolutely wonderful. 
and it's powerful on top of it. Um, I've had the pleasure of seeing Greta speak, and I've just had goosebumps. It is so powerful, this movement. Do I agree with everything that they say? No. But I love the passion. I love the momentum that it carries with it. And I think it's a game changer. Yeah, I hope I hope the passion can be harnessed for meaningful progress um, going forward. And I hope that we don't see that COVID dampens that momentum. I, I think we need to keep reminding ourselves that this is temporary. And I think Ursula van der Leyden said um, there may be a vaccine for COVID, but there is not as of yet a vaccine for climate change. Absolutely. that That is a great place to end. Thank you very much, Kelly, for taking time to join us today. Our guest has been Kelly Kazire. She spent 15 years as an EU negotiator in the UNFCCC and is now a vice president at the Environmental Defense Fund. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.